From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. Today, we present stories about summer jobs from writers Jennifer Rawlings, Sarah Bracey White, and Annabelle Monahan. It's time you start earning your own spending money. Get a job for the summer. Dad, I don't have time for a job. I have things to do. Why do you hate me? Even though I knew little about cooking, I was to be the head cook's assistant at an exclusive girls' camp nestled on the shores of Lake Fairley. My kid got a job, like for money. I'm blown away that he's going to be spending the day doing something that I'm not paying for. It's like he's going to free daycare and coming home with a pocket full of minimum wage. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer David Nacello recalls a summer vacation with a story about the power of a place and the power of a poem. No t-shirt or mug, shard of beach glass or coiled whelk matches the souvenir of a finished poem. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Ah, summer. A break from school and a time to sleep in and hang out with friends. Or maybe instead, it's a time to catch the bus, clock in, and put on your name tag. We've assembled a trio of summer job stories from talented writers who recall those summer days all too well. And we begin today's show with Jennifer Rawlings. Jennifer grew up in Kansas with supportive parents, but at the ripe age of 16, she was confronted with the harsh reality that if she really wanted something that cost money, she was simply going to have to find some way to earn it herself. Recorded on stage at City Winery in New York City, here's Jennifer Rawlings reading A Kansas Tan. Salina, Kansas, I am 16 years old. Dusk is just settling in as my dad and I settle on the front porch. My dad in his lawn chair with his Pabst Blue Ribbon, a pipe full of tobacco, me on the porch swing with a pink can of tab. The mosquitoes are chewing my copper-toned legs, but I don't care. I have an agenda. Dad, um, can I have some money to buy tickets for Summer Jam, the Summer Jam concert? This was going to be the most important concert of my entire life. Ario Speedwagon, Styx, John Cougar before the Mellencamp. Everyone was going, and I had to be there too. Puff, puff on the pipe, tamped down the corner with a matchbook. My dad's answer, slow as a smoke ring. It's time you start earning your own spending money. Get a job for the summer. Dad? I don't have time for a job. I have things to do. Why do you hate me? <laughs> I ran upstairs to my bedroom and dropped the needle on Super Tramp Breakfast in America. <laughs> I wasn't lazy. I just didn't have time to work. I had my driver's license. I needed to drive with my friends <laughs> to the mall and to the liquor store. We loved the liquor store on State Street. It was called State Street Liquor. <laughs> the 
Governor had the posture of a question mark, and despite his horn-rimmed glasses, he really wasn't that sharp. He carded me every time I went in because it said, we card everyone. And every time, this 16-year-old walked out with the same hooch I put on the counter. We drove to the banks of the Smoky Hill River, drank beer, and inhaled the secondhand smokes we had swiped from our old, older siblings. I also had a boyfriend, Richard Johnson. Dick Johnson. <laughs> Making out in the back seat of Dick's car, his rust-colored Chevy Seville with vinyl interior was very important summer pastime. I just didn't have time for a job, but I was going to have to get a job if I wanted to go to the summer jam. My parents were digging in. My mom wanted me to work at Dylan's grocery store, and my dad wanted me to work at his law office. I was still hanging out on to my summer plans of getting drunk with my friends and getting a tan. Then it hit me. Four years earlier, we had put a swimming pool in our backyard. Now, in case you don't know, Kansas is nothing like California. A backyard pool is a terrible idea because it's either snowing, raining, lightning, or a tornado 320 days a year. My summer job, I thought, I'm going to give swimming lessons in the backyard. Now, I had, hadn't taken lifeguarding nor given a lesson on any subject, but hey, I was on the swim team. A half a dozen students signed up. Eight-year-old Wade Chang was one of my students. His family had just moved to Kansas from Korea, from Seoul to Salina. One sunny Thursday, Wade took a double swimming lessons because the day before, there had been a tornado. <laughs> and as his mom was writing me a check, Mrs. Chung asked me, do you know anyone who could give Wade French lessons? Now, I had taken a semester of French the year before. <laughs> and as she was writing out the check to me, I was counting the money in my head. And I thought, yes, I do. I can give Wade French lessons. Wade signed up with me. I taught him everything I knew. We counted to 10. I taught him the word for cat dog, the months of the year, not in order. <laughs> I taught Wade six days of the week. My summer job was muy bien. I had money for summer jam. The big day arrived, 180 miles to Kansas City. Afternoon, Triumph and Loverboy. Evening, John Cougar and then the band we had waited our entire teenage lives for, Ario Speedwagon, was about to hit the stage. The music stops. Lightning crashes. Thunder rolls. The sky turns from blue to black to green. The air is still. The tornado sirens blare, rain heavy, and the PA instructs us to follow the signs to the nearest tornado shelter where we sit for the rest of the night. This is Merit, I say. 
that means shit in French. And Wade knows that word, too. Jennifer Rawlings is an award-winning writer, performer, and filmmaker who's appeared on Comedy Central, PBS, VH1, A&E, CNN, and elsewhere. She has two popular TEDx talks, and her solo show, I Only Smoke in War Zones, tours globally. She divides her time between her homes in New York and California. For some listeners, our next story might conjure memories of sun-kissed days at summer camp, playing sports, making music and new friends, maybe even boating or swimming on a beautiful, sparkling lake. That was not at all the experience of our next writer, Sarah Bracey White, whose contribution to Our Summer Job Show is a personal story entitled Camp Cook. Here's Sarah Bracey White, recorded on stage at City Winery in New York City. In 1963, days after my graduation from a segregated South Carolina high school, I boarded a train for White River Junction, Vermont, where even though I knew little about cooking, I was to be the head cook's assistant at an exclusive girls' camp nestled on the shores of Lake Fairley. I dreamed of learning to swim in the beautiful lake pictured in the camp's brochure. Upon arrival, however, Camp Bina Dewin's owner told us that the kitchen help was not allowed to go near the lake. We also were told not to associate with the white campers and to address each one as Miss during all encounters in the dining hall. Up north, it seemed segregation was a matter of class and skin color. I was absolutely incensed and wanted to bolt, but I had no way to get home and no home to return to. My mother had died a few months earlier, and I'd had no contact with my absentee father for years. Bina Dewin was to be my interim home until I entered Morgan State College that fall. The camp's offer of room, board, a round-trip train ticket, and $300 in exchange for two months' labor no longer seemed fair, but I accepted my fate. Mrs. Lee, the head cook, six other teenage girls, and I quickly settled into the routine of preparing and serving home-cooked meals for 150 people three times a day, six and a half days a week. It was still cold and dark each morning as I made my way through the pine-scented forest to the kitchen, where I stirred huge vats of maple, loaded slices of white bread onto an industrial-sized rotating toaster, then buttered and pressed each slice into a plate of cinnamon sugar after it tumbled from the conveyor belt. Under Mrs. Lee's tutelage, I learned to make and enjoy delicacies like sugar cookies, clover leaf dinner rolls, and smooth brown gravy for pot roasts. Despite my anger about the restrictions at camp, I was shamelessly curious about the white campers. 
Never before had I been in such close proximity to so many young white girls my own age. From my side of the kitchen counter, day by day it grew easier to eavesdrop on their conversations as they grew far more used to our brown presence and we became about as insignificant as the pine trees that sheltered the camp. I soon learned that white skin brought no solace from money problems, didn't ensure smooth boy-girl relationships, or prevent sadness and heartache. The white girls had the same problems I had. I also learned that having two parents at home didn't always make a happy family. Every Sunday afternoon, the resident handyman took the seven of us sightseeing in the camp's old woody station wagon. I marveled at the beauty of the Vermont countryside and the quaintness of its villages. I also surmised from the stares that our little brown-skinned group always drew that no other colored person had ever lived in or entered or visited the state of Vermont. <laughs> An overwhelming sense of being different and unwelcome permeated my entire experience. The last Sunday afternoon before camp ended, instead of joining the weekly tour, I made a pilgrimage through the pine forest to the forbidden Lake Fairley. As I looked out over the vast mirror-like expanse, I again grew angry. What right did white people have to bar me from something God made? Since they thought my skin would contaminate their lake, I decided to do something that really would. <laughs> I lowered my panties. <laughs> I stepped into the water. I squatted and peed. <laughs> Sarah Bracey White is a writer, teacher, and arts consultant with degrees from Morgan State University and the University of Maryland. Her published works include Primary Lessons, a memoir, and The Wanderlust, a South Carolina folktale. Her essays have been published by the New York Times, the Afro-American newspapers, and the Journal News. She's a frequent contributor to Read 650 and lives with her husband in Ossining, New York. A friend of mine whose children are grown once told me that parenting never gets easier, it just gets different. Our third summer job story in today's show is a mother's reflection on her child's inevitable, all-important rite of passage. Here's writer Annabelle Monahan reading her personal story, My Kid Got a Job. Raising kids isn't cheap. At first, it's just the basics, like shelter, clothing, and food, but it quickly spirals out of control into music classes, their own seat on an airplane, and many, many pairs of subtly different cleats. 
The first time I saw the price of six weeks of summer camp, I gasped and briefly considered hanging out with them myself. <laughs> then there's a point when teens need actual cash. Their social lives no longer happen on the playground. They meet up with their friends at and around places that sell pizza and snacks, and without a few bucks, it's technically considered loitering. They don't need a lot, but it's at this stage that a parent starts to feel like there's a hole in her pocket. Which brings me to my big news. My kid got a job. Like, for money. <laughs> I'm trying to let this inevitable but totally unanticipated event sink in. At the most basic level, I'm blown away that he's going to be spending the day doing something that I'm not paying for. It's like he's going to free daycare and coming home with a pocket full of minimum wage. The best part, while he's at this place for free, plus salary, he's going to learn what $20 means. He already knows what it buys, eight slices of pizza, a trip to the movies, or the price of the basketball he just lost. Frequently, it's just one slice of pizza, the change from which gets crumbled into his pocket, only to be found and kept by me on laundry day. <laughs> Any which way, a 20 goes pretty fast. What he doesn't yet understand is where that $20 comes from. A person with a job quickly learns that a trip to the movie costs nearly three hours of work. Specifically, he's going to have to fetch beach chairs and umbrellas in the hot sun for three hours in order to go to one air-conditioned movie with popcorn. This watershed learning experience it marks the exact moment when people get a little pickier about the movies they choose. This $20 lesson is one of the many, many things that you can't teach your kids through talking. I tell them about pre-tax dollars and social security contributions, and they gave me that look. That look I give people when they talk about grandchildren. <laughs> I get the concept, but how is this ever going to apply to me? Only at the experience of gazing at that first paycheck and thinking, wait, that's it? can teach you what $20 really is. My mom did not have a hole in her pocket, so I got my first summer job at 14. In 1984, we weren't bound by things like working papers or the truth. I walked into a local store, and I asked if they were hiring for the summer. When they asked my age, I replied, how old do I need to be to get this job? I thought it was a fair enough question. In this way, I worked through high school summers folding sweaters, then scooping ice cream, and eventually answering phones. And these are all skills that I brought with me into adulthood. <laughs> it was the office jobs, though, filing stuff, that really made me think about the future. Cooped up under the fluorescent lights, breathing the recirculated air, and watching the clock move backward. I realized that money isn't easy to get. I started to understand how much of someone's life is spent working and the importance of finding a job you enjoy. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew it wasn't putting other people's stuff in alphabetical order. <laughs> it's ironic how much time and money I spend giving my kids experiences when the best ones are those they can go out and get themselves. Oh, and the best part, they're going to feed him lunch. <laughs>
Annabelle Monahan is the author of the novel Nora Goes Off Script from G.P. Putnam Sons, named one of the best beach reads of the summer 2022 by The Washington Post, USA Today, Cosmopolitan, and others. She's also the author of Does This Volvo Make My Butt Look Big, a collection of essays based on her column that appears in The Huffington Post, The Week, and The Rye Record. Annabelle lives in Rye, New York, with her husband and three sons. If you liked today's episode, I have two requests for you. Please tell one friend about Read 650, and please review and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us, and it helps other listeners find the show. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donani-Mayer, and Rhonda Zangwill. Our chief technology officer is Sarah Caldwell. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show is produced by Jim Russick. We'll be back with David Masello and Between the Lines after this short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from City Winery, a fully functioning urban winery offering intimate concerts, food and wine classes, private events, and fine dining. City Winery strives to deliver the highest end combined culinary and cultural experiences to guests passionate about sharing wine, music, and good food. City Winery brings the wine country experience to the city. View the complete event schedule at citywinery.com. Read 650 contributor David Masello is an essayist and poet who writes about art and culture, and sometimes he even writes about writing. In today's edition of Between the Lines, David shares a story about the power of a place and the power of a poem. What I did with my summer vacation is write a poem. Those 12 lines about talking with friends at a dinner are the best record I have of having done something different. No t-shirt or mug, shard of beach glass or coiled whelk matches the souvenir of a finished poem, especially one you get to recite to others. As a student attending the Frost Place Summer Poetry Program in New Hampshire, you have the chance to stand at a podium inside Robert Frost's barn, where he once milked his cows and likely practiced lines with the animals an undulating profile of white mountains scrolling across the open shed doors. There, on the final night, you recite to your fellow students what you have written. Breezes whistle through chinks in the wooden walls, while flaming torches on the lawn ripple with enough smoke to make you think the barn may be on fire. Trooper, a three-legged dog owned by a local woman, is in the audience, and if he gets restless with your imagery or metaphors, he'll saunter onto the podium to make it known you have more work to do, with a yawn or shake of his body to dispel flies. The import of being in the very place where Robert Frost had worked as a gentleman farmer, and where he thought and composed, is an experience that can inspire an ode. His white frame house lies beyond the barn, and in an upstairs room there is a desk where he finished what he had probably begun while pulling on udders. The head of the program, Patrick Donnelly, who is equal parts poetry sage and poet, 
said something in his final address that resonated with us all. He thanked us for being so supportive of each other's work, but also said that he knew we had all come to the workshop troubled by something in our personal lives. How did he know this? Many of us nodded in agreement the moment he uttered that, as if we were parishioners in our pews responding to a sermon. After a week of pure poetry, I, like my fellow poets, returned home to face some of those same problems that were alluded to by the director, but better equipped to write about them and live with them. What I did on my summer vacation lasts the whole year. David Masello is executive editor of Milieu, a national print magazine about interior design. Previously, David held senior editorial positions at Town & Country, Art & Antiques, Travel & Leisure, and others. Prior to his magazine work, David was a hardcover nonfiction editor at Simon & Schuster. He lives and works in New York City. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, and it's the place we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and while you're there, take a look at the open submission calls for upcoming shows to see what might inspire you. If you have any comments or suggestions to share about the show, perhaps you'd like to suggest a topic or a venue, or you might like to join our team and help steer the organization, you can always email me at ed at read650.org. That wraps up today's Summer Jobs show. Thank you again to writers Jennifer Rawlings, Sarah Bracey-White, Annabelle Monahan, and David Masello. For more Read 650, you can follow us on your social media of choice, but I'd also encourage you to visit our website, read650.org, and poke around, look through some of the pages, learn a little more about us. And you can also sign up to receive our twice-a-month newsletter, where we will keep you apprised of upcoming deadlines and events. We won't bomb your inbox, and we'll never share your email address with anyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.